Today I want to do what I'm calling a biography of worship. I want to look biblically and historically at how worship developed and why we do some of the things that we do. Um, To get to that, I'm going to use what you might think would be an unusual scripture for that topic. We're in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, if you want to turn there, starting in verse 13, going through verse 35. This is one of the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, Mighty in deed and word before God and all people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going to go farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them. In the breaking of bread. Here ends the reading of God's word. When the ancient peoples tried to understand how the world worked and how God worked, they assumed that the gods must be up in the heavens. After all, that's where the sun comes from. That's where the rain comes from. That is what we need for our crops, for our livelihood. 
And of course, that's also where lightning comes from, and hail comes from, and drought comes from. And so whatever we need to worship, whatever we need to be important in our lives, must be up there. And so when they went to worship the gods, they would go up on the hills. Why? Because if the gods are up there, they wanted to get closer to the gods who were up there. And they burned offerings to the gods. So as the smoke would go up, the gods would understand that they were worshiping them. They understood that they needed the gods. They needed to, to approach God in such a way that they would, they would show that they were in need. Worship has always been a positional act of saying, you are God, I am not. You are to be praised and I am to sacrifice and do whatever I need for you. But worship changed as a man named Abraham was called. Called away from his father's house. Called away then from the, the gods of his father's house. Often you would define the gods in your own way. And you would have little idols in your house that would, would represent the different gods. You might have your own family god. You might have a big community god. You might have a god of the sun, a god of the rain, a god of the storms. But when Abraham was called, he was called to worship the one true and only God. And so his family broke away. And as he finally, in his old age, had children and his children had children, his family began to worship differently than the world around them. They ended up in a place called Egypt. And we remember this story, right? A man named Moses leads them out. And when Moses leads the people out of Egypt, he begins to define worship a little more specifically for them. At first it was just a family, a family like any other family, but was called to worship the one true God. But when Moses calls the people out of Egypt, their worship begins to get structure. And if you want to understand worship, you have to understand the structure that they found. First of all, the Old Testament worship was based around festivals. Most of those festivals related to the agricultural year. So most of the festivals you find in the Old Testament are for planting or for reaping of different crops throughout the year. Why? Because their lives were based around those crops. And so it made sense to have festivals to praise God in those moments of celebration. Their year was marked by the crops. Of course, the most important of those festivals was the festival of the Passover. That was where God really delivered them from the Egyptians, from their slavery. And their world was defined by that act of God. There was nothing more significant than the Passover. Moses begins to build the tabernacle, which would eventually become the temple. And so there would be a specific place. For the first time really ever, there, there might have been... Different places on different mountains to different gods. But for the first time with Moses, there's one place where you go if you want to meet the one and true God. You had to go to the tabernacle. You had to go to the temple. There were all kinds of customs that developed from daily prayers. The, the repetition of praying multiple times a day. Uh, some of which would involve eventually the Psalms. There was washing before meals. 
So you had to ceremonially wash before you ate. But there were also special occasions where you had to wash your whole body. So much so that, that you would either have to do that at a river or later when they get settled in Israel, they would have these pools around where you could walk. It would be sort of down a couple of steps and then up a couple of steps in a pool of water to wash yourself clean after you had been injured or around someone who was unclean, that sort of thing. Your def- the definition of how you got into worship and how you are part of the worship community was circumcision. It literally cut into your skin that you were part of this community. You gathered on a Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was not Sunday. It was Saturday. And Saturday was a day that was set aside from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, where you did no work, you rested, and you worshipped. But of course, you would worship all the time. But that was the day set aside. In the Old Testament, this continues to develop. As we get a temple, as we get a priesthood, for the first time with Moses and following, you have professional ministers that are in charge of keeping up these customs and helping people to learn how to worship. In the Old Testament, it doesn't always work real well. Worship can sometimes become a place of exclusion rather than inclusion. It can sometimes be a place of abuse rather than of care. Prophets speak out against the way people worship much of the time. And yet, through all its struggles, it continues to be the way in which People would connect with God. In the New Testament, it changes dramatically. As Jesus comes along. One of the key moments is is at Jesus' crucifixion. There was a, a big curtain, a veil that used to close off the Holy of Holies where God was supposed to be. And when Jesus is crucified, that veil is torn. The temple structure falls apart. Jesus says that he will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. He's speaking of his body, but the temple itself also changes. The New Testament Christians continued to meet in the temples. They continued to try to go to the temple. They weren't thinking that this was something other than Judaism. They thought it was the next step in Judaism. But they also began to meet in their homes. And we know a little bit about this, particularly from the book of 1 Corinthians, as Paul is talking with the church about their worship customs. That they used to gather in homes, in small groups. They weren't, by that time, probably allowed to go into the temple anymore. They would gather, they would spend some time together, they would share a meal together. Somebody would would preach or would speak normally opening up the Old Testament until some of the letters of the New Testament began to be passed around, in which case, if you had a copy of those, you might preach or talk about those things. At the end of this time, there would be communion, and there was always an offering. At first, the offering was really to take care of the Christians that were in Jerusalem. Not so much later, it would be to take care of buildings or to take care of pastors, because there weren't buildings And there weren't pastors. There were just the apostles based out of Jerusalem. The early church carried on this tradition. But they got a very interesting model for how they would do worship. And it's actually, strangely enough, the text that we read out of the book of Luke. They based their worship around two things. 
Remember what happens in this story. These men and these people are walking along the road. Jesus joins them, but they don't know it's him. And he begins as they're doubting, as they're wondering, as they're questioning. To open up the scriptures, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and look at how Jesus, about how he was in those texts. About how he fulfills those texts. That the first part of worship is always word. It's always opening up the scriptures to see how Jesus has fulfilled the things that were written about him. And so in the early church, the word became really important. Looking at the texts. As later the New Testament was developed, those were added. But at first, it was probably a lot of the Old Testament and a lot of the stories that people heard about Jesus. But the first part was always the word. How does Jesus fulfill the word? Knowing about Jesus. And the second part was always the sacrament, always the, com- the communion. I mean, what happens in the story? Jesus goes with them because they ask him to. He's hanging out with them in their homes. And then there's a moment where he takes the bread. And the, the text is really specific. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, broke it and gave it to them. That's really clearly a description of communion. He comes to them, he breaks the bread, and suddenly what happens? They know who he is. They recognize who Jesus is. He is made known to them in the breaking of bread. Worship for the early church was about word and sacrament. They always went together. Always built on each other. You learned from the scriptures about God, and then you met God. You, you didn't just know about him, but you knew him. In the breaking of bread. So the early church would do this. They moved their worship not from Saturday, but to Sunday. This is an interesting move because worship had always been on Saturday for them. But they were so moved by the resurrection of Jesus that they wanted worship to reflect that. If you go to Israel today, today is a work day. Friday and Saturday are off. Sunday is Monday over there. But for us, Sunday is the day of worship. They didn't need to do this. God never called them to do this. But they were so defined by the resurrection of Jesus that they wanted Sunday to be the holiday. Sunday to be the special day. The early church didn't really pay attention to where the tomb of Jesus was. If you go to Israel, they sort of guess where it is. They didn't pay attention to where the cross was. But they remembered that Sunday was the day where he was resurrected. And we now still worship on Sunday. Passover, which had been such a big deal in the Old Testament, continued to be a big deal in the New Testament. But not because it was the Passover. It's because that was when Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And so still, our year is primarily marked by Easter. As the early church developed a language for Christianity, a language for God, it became Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was a big change in worship for the early church. Because they they had to develop that language. It took a little bit of time to figure out how to say. It's all over the Bible. They just didn't have the language to represent it. And so true Christian worship is always Trinitarian. I I hope you never come to a worship service here at Westminster Church where you never hear about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's happened at least a couple times already in a prayer and in a song that I've been paying attention to so far. 
Because true Christian worship is Trinitarian. We don't worship a generic God. We worship a God who is revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is sort of compiled really in the 300s. That's where uh, Christianity starts to get some power. That's the first time that Christianity really starts to build buildings. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. We, we define church so much by the building. But the early church for 300 years didn't have buildings. They worshipped in homes. What does it mean to worship in a home? Have we even, have, have we lost that? Most of the songs were sung out of the Psalms through chanting, through some singing. But we have record of some songs. We have record in our scriptures of times where we think the Apostle Paul is quoting hymns of his day. And so singing has always been a part of worship. It was for the Jewish faith. It is for the Christian faith. In the early church also the the, uh, the definition of how you are engaged in church is different. It's not circumcision anymore. Circumcision is replaced by baptism. Although we've already seen that baptism isn't totally a new thing. That the Jewish faith had ceremonial hand washing. They had times when they had to dip into a pool to be cleansed. But that became the defining act of becoming part of the community. So still, most churches today, if you are baptized in a Trinitarian way, in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're welcome to commune and be part of the Christian community. We don't have to have a separate Presbyterian baptism when you come here, because if it was a Trinitarian baptism, we say you're part of that big community. Still for the early church, it was word and sacrament. It was the opening of the scriptures, and it was recognizing in the breaking of bread. As we get to the 500s, and there's a little more of a crisis of worship, worship gets even more regimented. It gets even more specific. The Latin Mass is started. To keep everybody sort of on the same page, Mass is really done in Latin. It's really done a specific and a certain way with very little change. The Bible is used a little bit less, and there's a little more of an abuse of power. It's during the Middle Ages, about the 1200s, that we finally get pews. I don't know if you ever thought about this. But worship for 1200 years was standing up. You came to worship, you stood up, and services were a lot longer than they are now. Finally, in the 1200s, you start getting pews. They weren't really pews. They were really benches. You don't get backs on pews for at least a couple hundred years after that. And even in our church's history of the last 200 years, um, we can find when we officially got backs on our pews. For a long time, it was still benches. None of this padding stuff either. It was hard and sore, but it was better than standing, I guess. Songs in the Middle Ages, I mean, really from the, from the 500s to the 1500s, songs are primarily sung in Latin. It's not really done congregationally. Congregational singing is sort of lost. But the churches get really big, and so the churches become a way of sort of expressing that grandeur of worship. We get stained glass windows where we can teach the word and the story a little bit more. But it stays the same for a long time, about a thousand years, there's not a lot of change in the Mass. It's really during the Reformation of the 1500s that, that it changes. That the Mass, that worship becomes different. And that's not just for the Protestants, it's really for the Catholics too. 
That's really when worship starts to change. First with the Protestants and then following. The reformers, we got to remember, didn't want to leave. They didn't want to, they wanted to reform. They wanted to change. They didn't want to have to leave. That's how it turned out. In in the, the old mass, the high point was definitely communion. At the expense of the word. In fact, the word isn't always even there. We don't even have sermons. It's really the sacrament of communion that gets elevated. Okay? And uh, it's done often in Latin, and the theology develops that we're actually sacrificing the body of Christ again and again and again to atone for the continual sinning of his people. So, so by far, the, the high point is the sacraments. When the reformers come along, they shift it back maybe too far the other way to make it once again about the word. Suddenly they move worship to not Latin, but the common tongue. And they emphasize the word. In fact, they, they sort of plot out five sections of worship, mirroring still the Mass, still the New Testament worship, even the Jewish worship. But it's centered around the word. Grab your bulletin. You can see the five sections still in there. Okay? The first section was when you were gathering around the word. So that's when you got together. We have a section in there. It says we gather and prepare for worship. That's that first section. That's where you came together when you were at meals. You would just talk and chat and welcome each other. We have a whole formal thing that we go through. Next would be the proclaiming of the word. On your second page in your bulletin, there's a little title. See how it's centered? It says God equips us for ministry. That's the word section. That's the actual proclamation of the word. There's always a response to the word. Sometimes it's a song. In this case, it's going to be the offering and a hymn. But we're responding to the word. The sealing of the word. That is where it says the sacrament of communion. You can see we got five sections still in our bulletins. The sealing of the word. That's where we take what was said in the word and we seal it. We, we close it off. We, we, we mark it as special and, and separate and closed. That's where we, God is made known. See, the word is where we get to know about God. The sacrament is where we get to know God. And then the last one is bearing and following the word into the world. Your bulletin says we scatter to love others and to serve Christ. It's, we're going out. The word leads us out into the community. It's during the Reformation as they move towards the, the word being more center that the pulpit becomes an even more prominent part of worship rather than the table being center. Priests become preachers or pastors in their definition or in their title. Communion gets a little bit less frequent primarily because the, um, the, for years and years and years, communion was every Sunday. The reformers, though, wanted to check you out before you had communion. And so you would have to meet with elders to make sure you were worthy for communion, something you couldn't do every week. So they moved it normally to every month or every quarter even. Congregational singing came back. Martin Luther had a lot to do with this. Martin Luther was in Germany. And what does Germany have a lot of still to this day? Beer. That was going to be your first guess. I know. Beer. And what was happening in Germany in Martin Luther's day was there was this new hip instrument coming on the scene called an organ. And all the best bars were putting organs in and leading drinking songs. This is true. You can look this up later. 
And so Martin Luther decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take some of those, we're going to take that bar instrument and we're going to take some of those songs and we're going to bring them in the church and we're going to reinstate congregational singing so people get to learn the theology again. In fact, one of his songs still sticks around. It's called A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. And it was a great bar song of the 1500s. That's where it started. And Martin Luther took it out of bars, took the instrument it was played on out of the bars, brought it into the church and rewrote the words for it. That's how we got an organ. Worship has changed even since then. With revivalism and Pentecostalism, worship has become a little more emotional, become a little bit more about engaging in worship, uh, engaging emotionally in worship. We've had more repetitive singing. Think about it. If you've got a tent meeting or a camp meeting, a revival, you can't bring the organ out every time you want to do one of those. And so what do you have to do? You've got to get simple, repetitive songs, and you've got to have some different instruments. And that is why worship started to shift to more praise songs and a little less organ. It's a lot because of revivalism and Pentecostalism. They wanted easier songs and more emotional songs. And you see that in a lot of our praise songs today. So much so that a lot of churches have gone through what we've called the worship wars. They've gone through times where the people literally fight over what worship style there is. Because, of course, we've always done it this way. But when you understand the history, when you read your Bible about this, you know what you find? There's about nothing we do in worship that's always been that way. What is most important in worship is that it is Trinitarian. That is not a performance or entertainment. It's not about you when you come into these pews. It's not about what you feel. It's not about what you think. It needs to all be about Christ. It needs to be focused on the word, focused on the sacrament. You notice one of the things that has been consistent throughout all of worship has been an offering. Offering doesn't pay for pastors. Offering isn't really about paying for the heat in this building and all of that stuff. Offering is about part of your worship, part of your response to God working in your life. Part of it is trusting God that he's got you, even in your finances. Music has always been an important part of worship, but it has changed a lot. Over time, worship has become more formal and more regimented. Some of this may be a really good thing, that we have tradition and we have consistency. And I'm one that wants to argue for it and to keep it and to teach people how it's important. But I worry sometimes that we have so cornered worship into Sunday morning that we have ceased to be people of worship. The truth is you were made for worship. You can worship. You can praise God and get into the position of submission with God by singing hymns on Sunday. But also worship God when you do a Bible study on Sunday morning in your quiet time. Or love your children on Tuesday morning. Or behave honestly and with authenticity at work on Wednesday morning. All those give praise to God too. We were meant to be people of worship. All this is, is a dress rehearsal for the rest of life. All this is, is practice. This is our weekly practice so that we go out and live the rest of our lives in worship. Help us to do that, Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship, to praise you, to honor you. Help us to learn to worship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.